Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The power and success of local political action to meet the needs of a community is revealed in the book Refinery Town, Big Oil, Big Money, and the Remaking of an American City, written by Steve Early, with a foreword by Senator Bernie Sanders, Refinery Town describes the political change in Richmond, California that began in 2000. Richmond was a largely working-class city of 110,000 people with one of the highest per capita homicide rates and twice the average jobless rate. Early tells the story of the community organizing that successfully raised the minimum wage, challenged evictions and home foreclosures, and sought to fairly tax big oil. The big oil is the Chevron Oil Company, which owns and operates in Richmond, adjacent to the San Francisco Bay, one of the largest oil refineries in California. Steve Early, formerly a community organizer, activist, lawyer, and union representative, and now the author of Refinery Town, visited with Radio Curious by phone on February 20th, 2017, from his home in Richmond. We began our conversation when I asked him to describe Richmond's transformation. for most of its 110-year history, been a city of industry. It was a huge shipbuilding center during the Second World War. Kaiser Shipyard was located here, turned out hundreds of uh, merchant marine vessels. The largest employer throughout the city's history has been an oil refinery, uh, started more than 100 years ago by Standard Oil, a company now known as Chevron. So, Richmond, in many ways, has been a prototypical company town dominated by a single industrial employer. And uh, on its way to some recent pretty dramatic political changes, the city experienced the full range of late 20th century urban woes. You could see evidence of the same sorts of problems uh, that are on display in, in Cleveland today and Detroit and Youngstown, Ohio manufacturing industry left and as deindustrialization proceeded in the in the late 20th century here uh, joblessness became a serious problem the housing deteriorated the schools as well uh, drug trafficking and gang activity moved in giving Richmond at one point one of the highest homicide rates per capita in the country and uh, the management of the city fell into disarray Fifteen years ago, it nearly went into bankruptcy. There were public service cuts. And the population, which by then, predominantly non-white, 80% non-white and 40% Latino, was extremely estranged from the local police department. And the police had been guilty of shootings and beatings and, and harassment of, uh, of both Latinos and, and African Americans. So it was a pretty grim situation a couple of decades ago when local progressive activists decided to come together and form a group that would uh, contest for local political power. Well, before we get into that contest for political power, let's step back a little bit and uh, ask you to 
address the reasons why the city changed the way you just described it to make it a difficult place? Well, in the early 20th century, it had been a company town, I guess, in the sense of, of many others where most of the people who worked at the oil refinery were also residents, including managers. But over time, they moved out, and the Chevron refinery at this point employs uh, less than 10% uh, Richmond residents. So you kind of have a situation where there's absentee ownership and management of the, the biggest business in town. And over time, since oil refinery uh, activity is uh, both dangerous for those in the workplace and neighbors surrounding the facility, more and more tension developed between the largely low-income population of Richmond subjected to the health problems and the, the many hazards associated with living downwind of one of the largest refineries in the state. Richmond was the scene in the 1980s of one of the pioneering environmental justice campaigns uh, anywhere in the country that involved poor and working-class people who are non-white. Uh, environmentalism here has never been in the fashion of Mendo or Marin, uh, you know, the stereotypical white upper-middle-class tree-hugger. It's always been about poor people whose kids had problems with asthma, who feared they would end up in cancer clusters, that they would have all kinds of respiratory and health problems as a result of being exposed to the fallout of refinery activity. So using that as a, as a micro-example of the change that came, tell us when it began and uh, some of the high points. Well, in the early days of the Bush administration, after the failed effort by Ralph Nader to run for president as a Green Party presidential candidate, a small group of Richmond Greens who'd been involved in third-party activity at the state, national level, decided to, to shift from their involvement in environmental activity and other single-issue campaigns and try to put together a municipal reform movement that could run not just protest candidates but actual credible campaigns for city council and mayor. The idea was to try to turn Richmond City Hall into a model for good government and urban policy innovation. These activists are known today as the Richmond Progressive Alliance, and the RPA functions simultaneously as a, <clears throat> an electoral formation, a, a campaign organization or de facto political party, but it's also a membership organization. Three or 400 people pay membership dues. It's a coalition of community and labor groups, which are represented on its elected steering committee, and it functions as a kind of key coordinator and clearinghouse for grassroots education and citizen mobilization around multiple community issues. And I think the thing that's made it successful, since, as we know, the left in the U.S. can be often overly fractious and divided and thus sadly irrelevant, uh, the Progressive Alliance unites both people who are registered Greens and Peace and Freedom Party members, but also liberal Democrats, African Americans and Latinos, uh, people who are socialists, independents, and in recent years it's made a real effort to try to elevate the leadership role of people who are younger and female and people of color. And it's been successful in that. 
Yeah, I'd say uh, it's one loss record. Stands up very well against uh, that of progressives in any other part of the country since 2004. The uh, progressives in Richmond uh, have won 10 out of 16 mayoral or city council races. And it also achieved a major victory last fall when Richmond voters, by a two-to-one margin, adopted rent control and the requirement that landlords now have just cause before they evict tenants. For 15 years, rent regulation had been a major priority of the group, and Richmond is now one of the first cities in about 30 years to introduce such an ordinance. What would be just cause in that circumstance? Well, there are definitely situations where tenants are engaged in criminal activity, where they're destroying the landlord's property, where there are complaints by neighbors that uh, would justify a landlord initiating eviction proceedings. Um, Everybody understands that there are are bad tenants, and landlords do have to have the ability to deal with them. Unfortunately, what's happened in recent years in Richmond, in the absence of any kind of due process protection and limits on rent increases, there's been huge crisis of housing affordability, and more and more low and moderate income Richmond tenants have been forced out of the city because landlords have been free to jack up rents three, four, five hundred dollars a month, and driving out people who are already paying 50 or 60 percent of their income on housing. People who've been pushed out of even higher housing market areas, higher cost areas like San Francisco or or Oakland or Berkeley have moved into Richmond, and that's put a lot of pressure on the local housing market. So long-term, the solution has to be building more affordable housing. Short-term, one major defense is limiting landlords' ability to, to raise rents annually to a measure tied into the cost of living. Let's talk about crime. And from the perspective of uh, Chris Magnus, the new police chief, um, certainly an unusual police chief if we were to look at the average person in that position nationwide. Tell us about him. Well, when progressives started getting more involved in city politics 10, 12 years ago, and in 2006 made Richmond the largest city in the country to elect a green mayor, Gail McLaughlin, who's still a member of the city council. One of the challenges they faced was public safety. As I mentioned earlier, relations between the police and the community were terrible, as police-community relations continued to be in, in many cities around the country. The city had been forced to pay out uh, large damage settlements as a result of civil rights litigation over police brutality. The Richmond Police Department at the time was not very diverse or representative of an 80% non-white community. So McLaughlin as mayor with other allies on the city council and the city manager, Bill Lindsay, conducted a nationwide search to find a police chief who would come in and shake up and transform the department. A very, very challenging assignment. They hired a fellow named Chris Magnus, who I profile in my book, Refinery Town, in a lengthy chapter on community policing. Magnus was from the Midwest. He had been a police officer in Michigan and later the police chief in Fargo, North Dakota. Uh, And over 10 years, he was able to turn the Richmond Police Department into a model for community policing of the best sort. 
He helped redefine the job of patrol officers so that their career advancement, performance evaluations were no longer based on how many people they busted or how many tickets they issued, but rather on how many relationships they built with people in their assigned beats. Um, Officers were encouraged to get to know and regularly confer with church leaders and small business people and nonprofits and neighborhood associations. They were encouraged to get out of their squad cars and do more foot and bicycle patrolling. All the cops in Richmond have business cards with their cell phone numbers on it. Magnus changed the way that public protests, marches, and rallies were policed in the city. He began hiring more women and people of color, promoting them. And as a result, the rate of violent crime over 10 years dropped, as did the homicide rate. And people began to view the police uh, rather than, as they had in the past, as a kind of militarized occupying army, but rather as an ally in the ongoing struggle to make the streets safer. I'd like you to explain the consequences of that in the spirit of citizen attitude towards police in Richmond. But before we go there, I want to say that in this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Steve Early, the author of Refinery Town, Big Oil, Big Money, and the Remaking of an American City. The focus is Richmond, California. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Can you address the the change and the consequences of how Chief Chris Mangus's work as a police chief has affected daily life in Richmond? Well, as you know, Barry, many cities have had some terrible incidents in recent years of uh, officer-involved fatal shootings. Uh, over the last 10 years, there have only been two in Richmond, and that's a, an extraordinarily low number given the continuing problems the city has with gun violence and gang activity. Uh, During that same 10-year period, I'd say between 250 to 300 young people of color tragically killed each other in various forms of gun violence. So the problem here at this point is not misbehavior by the police so much as social and economic conditions that continue to lead young people with no other job or educational prospects to gang activity and drug trafficking and and gun crime. There's a very innovative program that uh, was started uh, 10 years ago in Richmond called the Office of Neighborhood Safety, which functions in tandem with the the community policing work of of the RPD. And the Office of Neighborhood Safety Uh, with a mixture of private and public funding, has been very successful in what's called the Peacemaker Fellowship. And the ONS is staffed by formerly incarcerated gang members who have a lot of street credibility and a lot of contacts among young people involved in Richmond gangs. And they've been very successful in wooing people away from a life of crime, offering them stipends to go back to school, to enroll in job training programs to get counseling and help and basically provide them with an alternative path. Chief Magnus has an interesting story about his involvement with Black Lives Matter, standing with a Black Lives Matter poster in hand. Yes, it was a very controversial moment in his career in Richmond in late 2014. Uh, Chris, who's 
not only one of the few gay police chiefs in the entire country, became in 2014 probably the only one ever to participate in a Black Lives Matter vigil, a protest that was held on the main street of Richmond, McDonnell Avenue. This occurred at a time when there were street protests not far away in Oakland and Berkeley over police misconduct cases in other parts of the country. And I think it was a symbol of his personal commitment to reconnecting the police to the community and demonstrating solidarity with uh, the young people of color who, who organized that vigil. It was an action that, of course, was criticized by our local police union, but Magnus was strongly supported by our then mayor and other city council members and um, went on to accept a year or two later uh, an even more influential position as the police chief in Tucson, Arizona, a city eight times larger. He was hired away basically because he had become, in his Richmond years, one of the best-known public safety reformers in the country. So an interesting change that's going on now in Richmond is explained in your book, Refinery Town. In addition to the work of Police Chief Magnus, there's a movement towards gentrification in Richmond. How do you see that affecting the day-to-day lives of the people who live there now? Well, uh, as I describe in the book, there's quite a bit of organizing around um, housing issues. The threat of displacement is is very real and palpable. Uh, you know, Richmond's a city with a median income of about fifty to fifty-five thousand dollars a year for families. Uh, it's lower for Latinos. Twenty percent of the population still lives at or below the poverty level. So there's a, a lot of people here with not a lot of disposable income for for housing. The housing affordability campaign has focused both on enactment of of rent control, but also on trying to make sure that when there's new major development projects, the developers of market rate housing are required to set aside funds to build more affordable housing in the city. Uh, It's a real dilemma at the moment because even under the last eight years of the Obama administration, uh, the availability of federal funds for more low-income housing construction in cities like Richmond was very limited. And now we, of course, are looking at at least four years of a Trump administration in which um, federal assistance in this area is going to be drying up even more. There's another character in your book I'd like you to uh, share with us. Betty Reed Soskin, age 95, the oldest active-duty national park ranger in the United States. Can you tell us about her? Sure. Um, I mentioned earlier that during World War II, Richmond had been transformed in many ways by becoming a a major center for defense contracting. Henry J. Kaiser, now better known for starting the Kaiser Permanente Health System, was hired to open a shipyard, and Betty Reed Soskin was one of the workers drawn to new employment opportunities that were made available both to women and African Americans for the first time in and around the Kaiser shipyard. The wartime shortage of white males who were conscripted or enlisted to fight in Pacific or in Europe had left defense industries like the Kaiser shipyard with a severe labor shortage. So Kaiser sent recruiters to southern states and tens of thousands of people from families like Betty's moved from Alabama and Louisiana and Texas and Arkansas and Mississippi to Richmond to work in the shipyard. 
And Betty Reed Soskin today works at a National Park Service museum, the Rosie the Riveter Museum, on the Richmond waterfront, the scene of the former Kaiser shipyard, where she describes this enormous wartime shipbuilding project, its lasting impact on the demographics of the city, and the important role that the nascent civil rights movement played in helping both women, but primarily African Americans, fight for equality in the workplace, for access to jobs in other industries, and uh, an end to discrimination in housing. She sounds like a fascinating person that uh, I hope to connect with for a future Radio Curious visit. Uh, the Rosie the Riveter Museum has a wonderful display of local industrial history, and Betty is somebody who was living and working in Richmond during the war years, is a unique personal oral historian. I'd like to return for a minute to economic justice and ask you to talk about the fines that Chevron paid after the 2012 fire that amounted to several million dollars, but as you say, by one estimate, these financial penalties equaled five minutes worth of the company's total operating revenue at the time. That seems remarkable. Well, Chevron is a huge global energy corporation, and it is capable of devoting enormous resources on multiple fronts to lobby against stronger workplace safety and environmental regulation. The incident you mentioned was a fire that occurred at the Richmond Chevron refinery in August of 2012. It was the result of lax maintenance practices and the company's longstanding practice of putting production and profit ahead of workplace safety and community health. The fire that resulted in this preventable accident sent 15,000 refinery neighbors to area emergency rooms and health clinics seeking relief from various respiratory problems. The fire was investigated by state, local, and federal officials, and as you noted, the California Occupational Health and Safety Division uh, assessed what it announced was the largest fine in its history, a million dollars. There were other civil and criminal penalties that the company settled. The company continues to appeal the Calosha citations and is also fighting a lawsuit that was filed by the city of Richmond a year after this fire for compensation for the damages that the city and its people suffered. Yeah, a good part of the book describes the uh, never-ending skirmishing, both here and abroad, that critics of big oil find themselves in legally, politically, uh, whenever they tangle with a company with the enormous clout and resources of Chevron. And I think it's remarkable the degree to which people in Richmond, a city of only 110,000, uh, have been successful in some of this jousting because Chevron, as it is shown in litigation with uh, people who have been adversely affected by its environmental misconduct in places like Ecuador, can drag out lawsuits for years, uh, can try to buy politicians, can try to favorably influence regulators and sway legislators to a degree that is probably greater than almost every other major corporation in the country. 
Well, Steve Early, author of Refinery Town, Big Oil, Big Money, and the Remaking of an American City, I want to thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask a little bit about you. Could you tell us about a eureka or an aha moment that uh, influenced your life or changed your life or gave you a new vista of your world? Well, I've been, as you know, involved in labor activity for about uh, 45 years, and um, uh, I think I was propelled in the direction of of uh, doing work around workers' rights, workplace health and safety, uh, unionization campaigns, uh, because of some early experiences of my own uh, as a part-time and seasonal worker when I was in high school and in college. Um uh, I was uh, growing up a quite avid golfer and worked as a a caddy at a uh, rather wealthy uh, private country club where I grew up in in downstate New York and um, kind of seeing how the members of the private club treated the hired hands, including myself, uh, as we plodded along the the fairways uh, carrying their heavy leather golf bags kind of gave me a new perspective on on uh, the uh, the different position of the 99% versus the 1% uh, at leisure. And uh, I think ever since I've been uh, committed in whatever way I could be to helping uh, those who work for a salary or a wage improve their pay and benefits and conditions and their treatment by uh, the club owners <laughs> and the club members and the Chevrons of the world. And what would you like to do with the remainder of your One Precious Life? Well, my next book project is one that kind of flows out of this one. I'm very interested in uh, doing a a kind of book-length study of how 60s-inspired or 1960s-influenced baby boomers are dealing with aging and retirement because some of the people profiled in the Richmond book, Refinery Town, uh, are retired 60s leftists. Uh, who moved to Richmond, veterans of the anti-war movement, the women's movement, the environmental movement, black power movement uh, 40 years ago, uh, who are still active today in community affairs. And so I'm kind of interested in how that generation is dealing with questions uh, related to aging and retirement, how they're trying to reshape the communities they live in as ones that are... uh, senior-friendly, but also connected to the problems of, uh, of younger people. And finally, Steve Early, is there a book that you would recommend to our listeners? Well, there's a couple of books that I uh, was inspired to read as, a, as background for this one. Uh, there's a wonderful book that was written by the narrative journalist Tracy Kidder about Northampton, Mass., a few years ago. It's called Hometown, um, also very character-driven, profiles of the mayor, a police officer, um, some folks connected with uh, Smith College, which is located in Northampton. Also take a look at Charlie LaDuff's book about Detroit, Detroit and American Autopsy, or Gordon Young's profile of his hometown, Flint, Michigan, called Teardown. I think there are three, three books that are very insightful about uh, urban life and politics and, and, and policing issues in the case of, uh, of Tracy Kidder's book. Well, Steve Early, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Thanks for having me on the show. Steve Early is the author of Refinery Town, 
big oil, big money, and the remaking of an American city. This book describes the social and political changes in Richmond, California, which began in 2000. The book Steve Early recommends is Detroit, An American Autopsy by Charlie Leduff, L-E-D-U-F-F. This program was recorded on February 20th, 2017. Radio Curious has over 600 archive editions on our website. They're free for anyone to enjoy, download, and broadcast as you wish. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters about our programming and look forward to hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The snail mail is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, that's U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. And the phone is 707-462-6541. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.